Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Thank you, Ellie, again, and good morning again. Good to see you guys once more. Um, powerful passage of scripture, considering what we're going to be studying this morning. If you would turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, we're going to finish chapter 3 today, and um, just thinking about the accessibility to the Father, to the throne room of grace, because of Jesus, is an overwhelming introductory to this passage, thinking about the way that's been made clear by Jesus himself. You guys, it's incredible uh, to think of how accessible the God of the universe is to us. And it's exciting to be able to come to this place where we gather together as his church, as his body through Christ Jesus. And none of us has to be ashamed. None of us has to hang our head None of us has to be in this place of brokenness in Christ. Maybe there's some sin. Maybe there's some failure that's hanging over our heads. And I hope that this morning that we can deal with that so that we can hold our heads high in the grace and goodness of Christ Jesus. Amen. Thomas Aquinas said this, man sees the deed, but God knows the intention. Other people can judge us only by our actions, but God can judge us by the longings which never become deeds and the dreams which never came true. Uh, William Barclay would add, the perfect knowledge which belongs to God and to God alone is not our terror, but our hope. Think about that. The perfect knowledge which belongs to God and to God alone is not our terror, but our hope. The knowledge of God is something that brings hope to us. Think about that for a second in context of our sin. That dictates to us the posture that we can take towards our sin, knowing that God is for us and ready to cleanse us of our sin, but he is not for our sin. Some of us have heard, or maybe we've uttered the following statement to one another. This this came to mind this week as I was thinking about young people that I've ministered to. I've got a lot of internship stuff on my mind. I was thinking a lot about the young people that I've counseled over the years. And I've had so many people say this to me. And, and I think I've felt it myself towards other people that, um, that I felt like were just in a better place in their life than I was at the time. If you really knew me, you wouldn't want to be around me. You ever felt that way? Ever had that said to you? If you knew the real me, you wouldn't stay in the same room with me right now. Trust me, right? As if some heinous sin is going on inside your head that I haven't entertained already. That I haven't already thought or had to face or I'm going to have to face and fight in some near future. Listen, we need to take hold of this before we get going this morning, you guys. That idea, that mindset, if you knew the real me, you wouldn't want to be around me. That did not stop Jesus from doing all that was necessary to save you. If that didn't stop Christ Jesus, 
If that didn't stop the God of the universe, then why should we stop to reach into each other's lives and minister to one another? You guys, this has to get in heart deep this morning. Unbelievers have the opportunity to be saved even from their most heinous sins if they surrender to Christ. But for those in this building right now, for those who are hearing my voice right now, how much more so do we who have believed in Christ have no reason to fear or reveal what is really going on in our hearts when God's perfect knowledge brings us hope and not condemnation? God's perfect knowledge of us does not condemn us. It offers the cure. Now, he's not going to let you stay in your sin. What the Lord wants us to know, what God is trying to get through to us from his word, is that we are free and open and encouraged to come to him when we are in sin because he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? He is calling you in your sin to himself. He is not pushing you away. And church, so many times people may feel this way because we have a mentality about sin. We have an attitude about sin that makes people who are struggling or or caught in it feel repulsive to us. And we are called to look inside of ourselves and recognize that if God loves me in the midst of my mess and is redeeming me and sanctifying me, then I am called as a part of the body to administer that same healing touch to my brothers and sisters. Now, the question is for those of you who are in sin, will you yield? Will you listen to God who's calling to you saying, you can enter the throne room boldly because of Jesus. You don't have to shy away. You don't have to be afraid. You can come openly. You can come freely. Because of the finished work of Jesus, Upon whom we believe, the writer of Hebrews urges us, Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. I am convinced, church, that there are people listening to me right now who are suffering from condemnation and a conscience that's torturing you almost out of your physical body right now. That your conscience is burning so intensely inside of you that you want to leave the room or you want to shut off the feed. Stay. Stay and listen to what the Lord has to say. If we draw near to him, we have no need to be ashamed before him or any of our brothers and sisters in him. We can bring our brokenness to him and he will cleanse us. Stop choosing sin over God. Stop choosing sin over the precious blood of Jesus that was shed on your account. If we're to have a healthy church community, we not only need to be honest about our ability to come before God and to lay our lives before him to let him cleanse us, but also we need to be honest uh, and be transparent with each other. We need to be open with each other about what's really going on inside of us. We need to be transparent. We need to help to carry each other's load and not hide struggles with sin. God knows not only what we do, but what is in our hearts. And that's supposed to bring us comfort. That's supposed to bring us healing. It's not meant to bring condemnation. It's intended to bring us hope. If this is true, then why would we be afraid of people seeing us for who we really are? Why would we run 
from revealing who we actually are, if this is the truth about God and about his family. I believe that the reason for that fear is because we could very well be hiding something that he is convicting us for. Because we have something buried right now that we don't want to come into the light because we love it more than we love him. Let us feel that conviction. As a rapper one time said, I didn't feel the burn, but I heard a sizzle. I would love it if it sounded like fried eggs in here right now. Because we all should feel that a little bit. I'm feeling it. When I'm teaching like this, do you know who's hearing it first? It's got to go through my brain before I share it with you. God's preaching it to me right now. Maybe someday you guys will have this opportunity to stand up in front of people and have no consideration or be self-conscious, like, you know, self-aware like I am. I just don't care. But you guys, you'll actually hear the Lord speaking things and be like, wow. And you're like, dude, you said it. I know, but did you hear that? <laughs> it's not me. It's the Lord convicting us. It's the Lord calling us to himself. How can we not feel loved when God's saying, come to me? When Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, I'm not going to put you to work, son. He says, I'm calling you out of your sin into a walk with me so that you can rest, so that you can finally find some peace. You guys, we struggle with doubt. We struggle with feelings of condemnation. God is bigger than it all. Look at what John has to say here. First John chapter three. Yeah, that's right. We're just getting to the text. Verse 16 of chapter 3. I'm going to go back into last week's text. I'm going to read it as a setup. And then we're going to go from here. So 1 John 3 verse 16. And then we'll read down through the end of the chapter. John writes this from our study last week. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. That sets up where we're going this morning. Verse 19. This is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. Now this is his command, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commands remains in him and he in him. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. Our outpouring of love for one another is intended to reassure our hearts when we doubt. It's to confirm what we know, but what we're doubting and struggling with. Even when we doubt whether we belong to Jesus or not, and I have doubts. You guys ever been in that place, maybe at night where you're laying in bed and you're listening to your your, your wife or husband snore rhythmically, beautifully. I just hear about this from my wife. She says it's lovely. 
but you're laying there and you're just lit, you're just thinking and your mind starts wondering. Do you ever start you ever start to ask those thoughts? What if I got it all wrong? What if I'm totally off base? What if what I believe isn't even real or true? What if what if I am just a cosmic speck? Who am I? What am I? What's wrong with me? First of all, step one, go to sleep. <laughs> step two, get up and go to prayer about that. So many people are like, you know, like you have to deal with everything in the middle of the night. You know, like, well, you can pray about it. Maybe you should sleep. You ever get to that point of the day where you know you're unreasonable? You're like, I am so tired. I know I'm being unreasonable right now. Well, then go to sleep. That's why God gave us sleep, right? He gave us this rest, you guys. It's a beautiful thing. But think about this. God doesn't want us to sit in our doubt. He wants to affirm who he is in our doubts. He wants to strengthen us even when we have doubts. And I have them. I still struggle with it. And often when I do, I go to Mark chapter 9. I go to Mark chapter 9, and I need to be reminded of the story that happened in the life of Jesus. And what's crazy about the story, and what I appreciate about it so much, is that Jesus, when he gets into this situation in Mark 9, where he has to deal with this demon-possessed boy, and a father who brought this demon-possessed boy to Jesus' disciples and asked them to heal him, and they couldn't. Jesus had just come down off the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus had just come down from one of the only times that he revealed his glory during his incarnation. One of the most amazing miracles of Jesus' life is that he almost consistently and constantly revealed his glory. Well, on the Mount of Transfiguration, transfigured means to shine from inside out. He let that out a little bit. He revealed that glory Jesus was glorified on that mountain. You know, it was such a big deal that Moses and Elijah showed up for it. And Peter lost his mind, of course. He fangirled a little bit. He's like, let's build some tents and stay here forever. You ever done that at a concert? They kick you out eventually. But what's interesting is Peter gets all excited and God's like, shh, listen to my son. And what does Jesus do? Let's stay up here forever, guys. Yeah, let's just, let's just rock this glory forever. No, he goes, no, there's a demon-possessed kid we got to go deal with. So they go down the mountain, and they end up with this father and his son who's convulsing on the ground. They bring the boy to Jesus, and Jesus says, how long has this been happening to him? He asked this of the father. From childhood, he said, and many times it's thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I want you to think about as a parent, watching a demon take over your child and throw them into a fire. Watching a demon possess your child and throw them into water trying to drown them. Who do you think got the kid out? This father knows pain. This father knows suffering. He knows what it's like to watch this child that he loves be tortured in front of him. Feel the emotion. Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. This is the words of a desperate man who wants help. I get this guy. Not because any of my kids are possessed, even though they act that way sometimes wasn't even in the notes. I'll write it down. I'll write that one down for next time. (laughs) 
You guys, haven't we felt this way? Haven't we felt this frail and weak? Haven't we felt that frailty and that weakness of like, I know what God's asking me to do, but I can't. I, I don't have it in me. Help my unbelief is the smartest prayer to pray at that moment. Just like Peter, who prayed that beautiful short prayer. You know, we, we like eloquent prayers in scripture. Here's a beautiful prayer. As a man looks at God and says, help my unbelief. What was the greatest prayer of Peter's life? Well, he was drowning on the Sea of Galilee and said, Lord, save me. Three words. Lord, save me. What did Jesus do? Saved him. Just because I enunciated it that way. But you guys, these are, this, this matters. We can be so sure of our love and relationship with Jesus. Just like the disciples in that other Sea of Galilee incident. A lot of things happened to them on the Sea of Galilee. That body of water was tumultuous for the disciples. Remember when they're in the boat and they're trying to get to the other side and the storm crops up and they're, oh, and these are seasoned fishermen. These guys know what they're doing. And they're like, we're going to die. And Jesus is asleep. Do you ever feel that way? God is asleep and I'm dying. I think we can feel that way. We start to feel a little alone and they wake him up and they're like, don't you care? And Jesus is like, what's your problem? Calls a storm to calm down. He goes, why, why are you freaking out? Right? He says that to him when he's walking on water. I'm just, just thinking about all these instances with Jesus and his disciples. He's out walking on water. It's a ghost. He's like, chill. He's taking a walk. You guys are taking forever. I'm going to walk. Right? Think about this. He calms us in those places. He waits to get to these moments of desperation for us to just be real with them. You notice how in those moments, they're actually finally broken down to this place where they're being real with them. They've let their doubt come into where they're being honest with God, finally, as if he didn't already know. And they get frail, and they get weird, and they're like, he's like, okay, now we can get to work, right? Because this is who we are. We're we're trying to put up this, this facade with God as if he doesn't know. And I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it did. And like he, where we put up this thing and we're like, Oh, don't worry, God. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I believe I know the right things to say thee, thou thine and foreverest. And we start saying all these prayers that we think are going to win his favor. Doesn't work. It doesn't work. He wants you to say, Lord, save me. He wants you to come to him and say, help my unbelief. He wants you to come to him and say, I don't have all the answers and I'm a mess. And he says, now that you're humble, let's get cracking. You guys, Jesus cares. Church, we are branches attached to a vine. We are branches attached to a vine. He's faithful in those moments of doubt to reassure our hearts whenever they condemn us because God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Do you realize that those two things together are extremely profound? He's greater than your heart and he knows it all. Because you look at yourself and say, if he really knew me, he wouldn't want me. And God says, I already know you and I want you. And I want you with me. He healed that man's demon-possessed son despite his lack of belief. Do you really think that Jesus was like, well, let's deal with the belief side. Hang tight, Sonny. Let's deal with the belief side really quick. Let's get you solid in believing, and then I'm going to heal this person. 
No, in his grace, he healed the young boy anyway. And what do you think happened to the belief of the father? Your belief level has just gone up, right? And do you know what probably happened a couple weeks down the road? His belief level probably went down. And then the Lord would increase and encourage him. And then he'd go through another season of struggle. It's almost like this is a real person in real. You're not the vine, just like us. I'm not the vine. You're mine. He is. And when our hearts attempt to condemn us because we're still in this battle with flesh, John reminds us God is bigger than our doubts. God knows more than we'll ever know. And he is not interested in condemning us. Did you hear that? God is not interested in condemning you. If he wanted to, he would, and righteously so. If he wanted to condemn me, he could. But that's not what he wanted. Because John chapter 3, in the gospel of John, verses 17 through 18, Jesus says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He came to save. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Notice this. That Greek word used for believe is pistuo. Yes, I said it right. It's a verb. Now, why does that matter? I love this type of stuff. Sorry, just quick geek out moment. It's a verb. And the reason that matters is because the person in this passage that does not believe is actively choosing not to. It's not describing someone who cries out, help my unbelief. It's saying this person chooses not to believe, chooses against God regularly. You guys, when you look at this text in John chapter 3, anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned. It's not talking about your perfect faith that wins the favor of God. It's talking about you making a choice about who you're looking to, to take you forward in life, to lead you and guide you and to serve. God is so good, he doesn't constrain us with hoops to jump through for his approval. He calls us to believe in him to have faith in what he's capable of. And the writer of Hebrews goes on in Hebrews eleven six. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it's what? Impossible. You cannot please God without faith. Since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And he does. Okay, I'm done with belief. We made it through two whole verses. We're rocking. Onward. Dear friends, verse 21, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now that we've dealt with the condemnation side, what does it beget in our lives? Confidence. Confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. I don't know about you guys, but to me, that sounds like powerful prayer. That sounds like responsive, active prayer. If we want to be free from condemnation of our own hearts, we have to grow into our faith in Christ and out of our faith in ourselves or anything else for that matter. We need to grow into our faith in Christ and out of trusting in ourselves. We need to be growing out of it. How many of you are trusting in yourself? How many of us are trusting in what we know to be right or what we think is best? 
if our hearts don't condemn us, we can have confidence before God. Our confidence is before him and no one else. Daniel Aiken said this wonderfully. When we trust the judgment of our conscience to our great God who is omniscient about everything, our confidence shifts from being based on our experience and our feelings to being based on God's word and what he says about us. It's about what God has said about us. It's not about my feelings. Uh Uh-oh. Okay, there's a little sore here on the cultural shoulder, and I'm going to poke it. Please stay calm. We are ruled culturally by our feelings. We are being run and overrun by our emotions. You guys, our confidence needs to shift from being based on our our experience and our feelings to being based on God's word. And what he says about us. It's all about what he thinks and what he says. It's not about how I feel. You're like, he doesn't care about my feelings. Oh, he cares. We already talked about that. He cares about your feelings. What God is wanting us to do is believe in what he has said so that our feelings find their satisfaction in his truth. In what he has said, not in whatever the culture is saying around me and not what is going on inside my head sometimes. Because how many times is this the source of our doubting? I don't feel it. I don't feel right. I feel gross. I feel hated by people. I want something I shouldn't want. And God says, why don't you stop finding your identity of that and find it in me? Because he's given us the power to do so in Christ. When we agree with what God says in his word about us, we have confidence and a boldness that B.F. Westcott describes as this, the boldness with which the son appears before the father and not that which the accused appears before the judge. Think about the difference of those pictures. When we are confident in Christ, we have the boldness that a son comes before the father, not arrogantly, but confident of his father's love for him. And not in the way that someone who is being accused comes before a judge and says, please have mercy. It's, Father, I need your help. Do you see the relational change? We should. It should be powerful, powerfully different. You know what this confidence begets in our lives? When we are confident in who he is, it begets confident prayer. We have confidence before God, verse 22, and receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what's pleasing in his sight. We're able to stretch out our hands and receive what we ask for because we're doing what he said. We're doing what what pleases him. If you want answered prayer, live a life that pleases God. You will have answered prayer. You're like, but I'm still not getting what what I need. That's what you want. It's what we want. A lot of times that's what's frustrating us about our prayer lives. We're praying for what we want, not what he wants. Not what God has said should be happening. John's going to go on and use amplification, as we've talked about in this letter, to explain this again in the following way. In chapter 5, verses 14 through 15, he'll say, this is the confidence we have before him. He's talking about that confidence. He's talking about prayer. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. You're like, good, so God will give me what I want. Eh. No, God's going to give you what you ask of him when you ask according to his will. Maybe that's the problem. 
Our prayers have to be formed and shaped by his will. This is how we aim to pray so that his will be done here on earth as it is in heaven as Jesus taught us to pray. Isn't that how Jesus taught us to pray? Thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. If we start praying for that, then he is going to work, church. Now the question is, how do you feel about it? How do I feel about it? And is that getting in the way? Is that getting in the way of what the Lord wants to do? He says, listen, we might have a command issue here. So this is the command. Look at verse 23. Now this is his command, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commands remains in him and he in him. Meaning that we remain in him and Christ remains in us. And he says, and the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit that he's given. The Holy Spirit is that stamp, that seal from God on our lives. It's interesting when you see the words command here in these two verses, it's used for the seventh and eighth time in this letter. Fascinating to me because in all uses prior to number eight, there has not been an express explanation of what the command is. It's been alluded to. Bible scholars know to turn their pages and be like, ah, but here's the thing. Like, you guys, his commands are clear if you look through scripture, but John waited until this point to tell us expressly and exclusively, here's what God has commanded. So all of us should be like, all our ears are on, we're all ready. What is this command of God? What does he expect of us? This is his command, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. Did you notice, by the way, how Trinitarian these two verses are? This is the command of the Father made available through the Son, empowered by the Spirit. Believe and love. You guys want a head start on Christianity? Believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and love one another. Where do you think John learned this? I've asked this constantly through this letter. Where do you think John learned all this? You think he just did a lot of reading? Maybe talked to some of the other disciples, got their opinions on things? John is writing down what Jesus taught him face to face. Check this out. Bread of life chapter, gospel of John chapter six. I call it the bread of life chapters because where everyone's looking for real bread and Jesus is like, your focus is wrong. You know, like, what do we need to do to get that bread? I know that's like a thing today, right? You know, like, yeah, let's get that bread. Like, we're going to get this day done or whatever. And Jesus is like, you need to get that bread. I am the bread of life. You guys, John 6, 29, the people are desperate. They want free food. What can we do to perform the works of God? They asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God. By the way, that word work is um, not a verb. It's a noun. It's a finished thing. This is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. You believe in him. We know later on in scripture, there's a verb form of the word work that says God is actively working in us so that we can actively work out for him. But if you are looking for salvation, he says, you must believe in me. The work of God is something that's singular that needs to be dealt with. You must be born again. It's what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter three. This is the work. He's like, you guys want to get to work? Believe in the one he has sent. That's step one. That's why John says it here in 1 John chapter 3, in verse 23. And think about the other thing that he says. He says, you need to believe and you need to love. 
Jesus talked about love a lot, but I, I always take us back to this place. I've done it many times since we've done this study. In the upper room, John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. Jesus said to his disciples, I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. By believing and loving, we remain in him and he doesn't leave us in that place. He fills us with his spirit to be empowered to do it. This is what's happening within the hearts and minds of all believers. This believing and this love that God pours into us, this is what we must have within us so that we can love in action and in truth authentically as he called us to in our text from last week. As John brings us around to this subject and amplifies it for us yet again, He says, even when you doubt, God is bigger. Even when you condemn or seek to condemn yourself, God is speaking the truth and the reality of his transformative love through believing in Jesus Christ, his son. He is bigger than your fear. He is bigger than your doubt. He is bigger than your lack of confidence. Within our hearts, is this uncondemned heart that is confident in who God says we are despite our doubts and loves because his love flows through us via the Holy Spirit. For those who are in sin, for those who are struggling with sin, the call is to bring it before the Lord and be open, to repent. Repent of that sin so that you can know the peace of God that passes all understanding. And for any believers this morning who are struggling with doubt, who are feeling condemned, who are lacking confidence. I want to encourage you to confess, to repent. And I want you to hear the following encouragement in light of that. If you are willing to do that, listen to this encouragement from Charles Spurgeon. He said, when a ship first leaves the stocks, it is well for it to go on a trial trip. But to have a ship always being tried would be very absurd. It is time that it took voyages in earnest and was registered in the merchant service. There will be trial enough in the actual execution of service. In other words, you can't just putter around in the bay forever. Eventually, you've got to get out on the open water. Some Christians, by a continual introspection, are always raising the point, am I a Christian? Be a Christian. Am I a child of God? Be a child of God and enjoy it. Did you catch that part? We are intended to enjoy being children of of God. Do not spend a lifetime searching for the family register. I think this is expressly being spoken to believers. I think this is an in-house issue because I think a lot of times we get caught up in like, am I or I I don't know. I'm a Clairol Christian. Only my hairdresser knows. Right? Too outdated? Just for men, Christian? Okay. You guys... We all have doubts. We all have struggles within ourselves. Stop freaking out whether you belong to Jesus or not and start living. Start living like it. You know what you have been called to do by the scriptures to be saved. You're like, I do believe, but do I? 
If you do believe, then do. It's a work. Get moving. Stop wondering if you're a Christian and be one. Stop wondering if you're a child of God and be his child and live with that joy flowing out of your life. Let's go. Worship team, could you guys come on up? This morning, with that being said, with the call and the urging of be a Christian, be a child of God, be the family that he's called you to be. If you have put your trust in Christ, then live like it. We get to share a family meal together. Now we get to share communion together. And as the team comes forward, they're going to distribute the elements in just a second. I want to remind you of some things about communion because I don't want to sell this short. I don't want to sell it short that this is something that we just have to do because we go to church. Communion is sharing in the body and the blood of Jesus. This is a powerful thing that's exclusive to the family of God. Communion is a family meal, and as we take from one bread, which represents Jesus symbolically here, we are affirming that we're one body with him and with each other. And when we take communion, we don't do so lightly. We do it in full conviction of understanding that I need to come with sobriety to this time. I need to come before the Lord during communion, ready to confess my sin, to repent, because I don't want to have anything between anyone when I come to the Lord and I take his body which is unifying and I drink that cup that is unifying when we are taking communion we are recognizing that the same price that Jesus paid for me he paid for you and I want you to think about it in the light of this the Holy Spirit lives with inside of believers yes true believers are empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit are we treating each other as church family, are we treating each other like God is present in that person? Like the Holy Spirit is taking up residence inside of that person? Are we loving people the way that he loves us because we recognize the Holy Spirit of the living God lives inside of you? If we lived in light of that, if we lived in such a way that we are recognizing that God is present in you and I, how in the world would we use crosswords with each other? How would we become aggressive with each other when we say the living God is living in that person and has changed and transformed them? How am I interacting with people based off of that reality? Would I have a little bit more reverence when I talk to them? The way that I care for them? I'm not revering them. I'm revering the fact that the Holy Spirit of God lives in them. Church, let's consider this as we sing, as we take a moment. We'll take communion together in just a moment, but let's, let's sing for a moment. Let's consider these things. And let's take the time to pray and ask the Lord to adjust our hearts so that we can take communion authentically as the body of Jesus.